together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would send the spirit who inspired these words to be written by the Apostle Paul to make them living and transformative in our own lives. Pray that if we are not yet believers, you would change us into believers during this time of considering your word. And for those to us of us who already believe, we ask that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another, even as we consider the living word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's always interesting when you look at the names in the Bible, because you get names that still sound common enough. John, Luke, Paul. And occasionally you come across something like Epaphroditus. And you stop and think, I don't know if I know any Epaphroditus. I don't know if I've ever come across somebody who said, hi, nice to meet you. My name is Epaphroditus. And they occur right alongside the Lukes and Johns and Timothys and Pauls in the Bible. What is exceptional to me about this name here is really two different things. Um, maybe you could stop and say the reason why we have people named Luke and Paul and John is because Luke and Paul and John wrote basically three quarters of the New Testament. But I think what is actually more true is that Luke and John and Paul are Christian names associated with the Christian New Testament and its writings, whereas Epaphroditus is a pagan name. It's after the goddess of love, Aphrodite, so you can hear that right in the name, Epaphroditus. And I think it actually shows something of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are very familiar with Luke's and John's and Paul's, but may not know a single Epaphroditus. We are a culture that, even in rebellion and secularism, is still familiar to some extent with the Christian faith. The other reason I appreciate the name Epaphroditus is because in this section of Philippians, we see sort of the the everyday Christian, if you will. The Christian that is something like the rest of us. Where none of us, not one of us, will write a third of the New Testament the way the Apostle Paul did. And as we think of the Apostle Paul and all that he accomplished, even his joy from prison, it, it can become smothering and overwhelming. But Epaphroditus, we don't really know much about Epaphroditus. He is a feature in the book of Philippians. It's obvious that he courageously stood up and performed a service for the Church of Philippi and for the Apostle Paul. But beyond that, we don't know much about him. We can't say for sure if he was an elder or a deacon. But what we know is that he served the Lord Jesus Christ that he served the church, and that in doing so, he holds up for us something to aspire to, no matter who we are, 
whether we're ordained or not, and even if we're ordained just this very morning. So what I want us to do is uh, really dial into uh, just two different points as we look at these verses. First is Epaphroditus himself and the sort of role that he plays, what we know of him from scripture, which is mostly in these verses. And then if you look in 29, verse 29, there's a very beautiful verse that opens up for us a doorway to applying everything here to us today and this very church, because it says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. So that gets us immediately to the occasion of this morning and the ordination and installation that we have been a part of. But first, let's, let's just look at a few things about Epaphroditus. And what I want you to see here is what is so important to the Apostle Paul and the church in Philippi. Look, look at where all of the focus and the emphasis is in describing things in these verses. There's a triangle of sorts presented before you. Paul, Epaphroditus, and then the, the church, the Philippian church in particular. And it's described for you over and over. I mean, in these six verses, you just see one description after the next of the relationship that exists between Paul and Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi. So in verse 25, which we'll come back to in a moment, you have all of these different ways that Paul describes Epaphroditus. Then in verse 27, he speaks about Epaphroditus and his disposition um, towards the church in Philippi. He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. So you could see like a two-way relationship at work there. Epaphroditus is very concerned about the church in Philippi because he knows the church in Philippi is very concerned about him because they had heard that he was sick. In uh, verse 27, we read, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And you learn a little bit about Paul's relationship with Epaphroditus here, that Paul was, in so many different ways, a man of sorrow, uh, frequently afflicted with various things, at the point of writing the book of Philippians, in prison himself, not planting church after church after church, as he had become accustomed to, but instead in a form of house arrest, probably literally in chains to a Roman prison guard of some sort. And yet, he has this visitor, Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus has done something wonderful. He's brought support from the church at Philippi. But in the course of this service to the church and to the Apostle Paul, has become, uh, had become sick and seemed to be at the point of death itself. And Paul says, you have to understand that when God had mercy on Epaphroditus, it wasn't just God having mercy on Epaphroditus, but also on me, 
so that in addition to my chains, I wouldn't have the sorrow of having lost another friend. So Paul and Epaphroditus have a relationship. Epaphroditus and the Philippians have a relationship. Paul and the Philippians have a relationship. And these all reciprocate around each other to the extent that Paul can realize sending Epaphroditus to Philippi will result in their joy. So in verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And we can think a little bit about that, what was deficient in your service. You know, maybe the easy part of being involved in mission activities and ministries is giving money. You can usually come up with a little bit extra money to give to some cause or another. But in the first century, <clears throat> the early church, the real challenge was getting that money to the person who needed that money and taking all of the risk all of the risk involved with tra transporting money and, and traveling in the first century, risking whatever could go wrong with robbers and thieves and the breakdown of various forms of transportation. And Epaphroditus was that guy. He not only uh, was a part of the church that took up a collection for the Apostle Paul, but was willing to sacrifice himself to take that gift and bring it to the Apostle Paul. So Paul speaks about him as doing the, the last part of the service that Philippi had set out to do for the Apostle Paul, doing what was deficient in their service, bringing him that reward. And you can see a little bit more of that in chapter 4, verse 18. But for now, just see those relationships. And even think about this idea that Epaphroditus is, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, a pagan name named after the pagan goddess Aphrodite. And what's going on here? He's dear to a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, though evidently was born into paganism. And he's dear to the Apostle Paul, who once upon a time was the Pharisee of Pharisees and wouldn't want anything to do with a Gentile with a pagan name. And they are brought into a relationship of reciprocal love and care and affection. And, and that's really what all six of these verses are about. There's not a lot else in these verses except for describing the relationship between the church in Philippi, Epaphroditus, and Paul. And Paul brings that into crystal clear focus in verse 25. Look at all the different ways he thinks of Epaphroditus. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, and your minister to my need. I just want us to slow down for a moment and look at each of those different ways that Paul thinks of Epaphroditus. Paul, the former Pharisee, the former Jew, looks at Epaphroditus with a pagan name and says, that's my brother. Not by nationality. 
nationality, not by the culture into which they were born, not by social status and class, but because of Jesus Christ, Paul, the former Pharisee, sees Epaphroditus with a pagan name and says, that's my brother. And if you want to know how much I love him as a brother, when God had mercy on him and kept him from dying, it was a mercy to me as well. You see what the gospel does? It, it brings about this relationship. It's not just Christianese in which we call each other brother and sister because we think it sounds nice and warm and fuzzy. It's real. It's so real that it takes a Pharisee of the first century and brings him into brotherhood with somebody who has a pagan name. And the Phariseeism of Paul and the paganism of Epaphroditus are both before Christ, so to speak, and what is present is a brotherhood. Fellow worker. And we do see this. I mean, some of the closest bonds that we form are working alongside others, right? And working shoulder to shoulder, not just talking through things and comparing notes, but actually being in the thick of the work together. And this is such an encouragement, should be such an encouragement to all of us, uh, the communion of saints. It's not just the Apostle Paul, writer of one-third of the New Testament, planter of most of the churches, but Epaphroditus, his fellow worker. Even though this is where we read about here in uh, verse 18 of chapter 4 is where we read about Epaphroditus, and we don't know much about him besides that. He was the fellow worker of the Apostle Paul, and Paul understood him as that. And there I think it's great that we don't know if he was an ordained deacon or an ordained pastor or an ordained elder. Either way, no matter what, he was a fellow worker in the cause of the gospel. Fellow soldier. Something of a bridge there, not just a, a fellow worker, but a fellow soldier. You know, we need to think about ourselves in these terms, that we are fighting against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. That when we speak about all the ways we celebrate God of the resurrection, God of the living, not of the dead, all of the ways in which we live in a culture that rejoices in death and loves death and goes to that place and we cling to life, rejoice in conception and childbirth and the growing of the church here on earth and look forward to a life that will have no end instead of being smothered by the idea that all is crushed by death itself realize we're soldiers. We're part of an army. It's a kingdom at war. We're constantly assailed by secret powers, invisible powers, sinister powers, subtle powers. Every temptation, what is temptation? Everybody here, every one of you, myself included, we know what it is to be Tempted to be at a point where you think something's the right thing to do, but for whatever reason, you're tempted to do what you know is wrong. What is that besides an invisible satanic power?
You know, you can't look at it under a microscope. You can't say like, oh, this is what temptation looks like up close. It's invisible. It's a spiritual force in the heavenly places. And brothers and sisters, when you look at church and you see all the problems with it, you see all the hypocrisy inside of it, you see every reason to run as hard and fast away from Christianity as you can, you need to recognize that as a spiritual temptation. There's no perfect church this side of heaven. Every one of it, every one of them is a place where there's self-righteousness, a place where there's hypocrisy, a, a place where there is moral lapse, even by the leadership. But we soldier on. It's war. War that we wage together. Your messenger. Epaphroditus was the one who stood up and said, yes, I'll take, I'll take the gift to Paul and became a minister of the gospel through doing that. And apparently it was through that that he became sick, even to the point of death. And then Paul says at the end of verse 25, minister to my need. And I think we could bring that your into play there, that Epaphroditus was the Philippian minister to Paul's need. He was appointed for this task of bringing this gift that they had raised for Paul and then serving Paul, being a, a bearer of good news to Paul, being something of a, a counselor, a consoler, an encourager to the Apostle Paul. And that was, that's the role we have laid out before us of Epaphroditus. So, verse 29, men like him should receive your high regard. Let's think about that. Men like him. What a glorious thing it is to stop and think of 2,000 years of church history in which, because of what Jesus Christ has done, there are relationships going on and on, being built up that resemble the relationships between Paul and Epaphroditus and the Philippian church. To the extent that we can look at this church in Philippi and look at these verses and think about Epaphroditus and Paul and the Philippian church from 2,000 years ago, and without skipping a beat, we can just come right here today to this very room. And we can say, you know what? Like, it, it doesn't matter how much money is in my bank account. It doesn't matter what my resume says. It doesn't matter how good my grades are at school. It doesn't matter how much I've accomplished. It doesn't matter how many children I've had. It doesn't matter if I'm married or if I'm not married. What really, 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 really matters is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and Savior. He came, and before he even went to the cross, he said that he would had conquered then he went to that cross and decisively conquered by doing what no other ruler on earth has done, dying a death he didn't deserve to die. And because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, death couldn't hold him. He rose again from the dead. He ascended up into heaven. And now no matter who I am, no matter what my background is, no matter what I've accomplished, no matter what I've done, no matter what I've failed at doing, the most important thing about me 
is Jesus Christ. I call myself a Christian. The name I want to be known by isn't my first name necessarily, but instead that triune name that I was baptized into, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And when I come to church on Sunday, yes, I, I'm there to worship, I call upon the name of the Lord, I sing the songs, I pray along, I confess my faith, I read the Bible. But I'm there with brothers and sisters in that same Jesus Christ, fellow brothers and sisters, fellow workers, fellow soldiers, who at various points minister to me as messengers of the gospel that we collectively hold to. Messengers and ministers of the glad tidings of great joy that are mine because of Jesus Christ. And you know, when I think about men like that, men like him, men like Epaphroditus from 2,000 years ago, or men like the ones that are surrounding you, men and women that are surrounding you in this very room, I, I see something that is completely otherworldly. You don't get this out there. It's not what the news is about. It's not what articles in the newspapers tend to be about. It's not the way corporations are organized. It doesn't bring a capitalistic profit. I go to this place, and it, you know we're all sinners, and we're all struggling with temptation and sin and baggage and trauma and everything else, and yet, because of Jesus Christ, they care for me. They work alongside me. They minister to me. They encourage me. Fellow soldiers, fellow workers, fellow brothers. And it's not just the pastor and the elders and the deacons. It's what they're all called to. It's a communion of saints. And even though they're sinners, they're also saints because of Jesus Christ. Flippant church order, it says that the minister is supposed to exhort the man who is ordained and installed as ruling elder. So this part of the sermon is that exhortation. Men like him. Men like Epaphroditus. And of course, in these verses, you read all sorts of great things about Epaphroditus, a risk taker for the cause of the gospel, one who risks his own life selflessly, one who endures danger even at detriment to himself. But he's not an angel. He's a man. He's one of those sinner saints like the rest of us. When you see that, men like him, Maybe stop and say the best of men is a man at best. Because that's part of it. I still struggle with this on a personal level when I realize that I'm susceptible to temptation and a sinner myself. You know, why, why didn't the Lord set up a government for his church that consisted of absolutely perfect angels? Perfect angel pastors, perfect angel elders, perfect angel 
Deacon, why is it men like Epaphroditus? The best of men are men at best. Why men? Fallen men when it comes to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, brother, you're called to be a teacher as a ruling elder. And of all the things that angels could teach us, they could not teach us from experience what it is to be a sinner who's saved by grace. A sinner who goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again and says, thank God that you are perfectly righteous because I am not. And thank God that you lived a death conquer, you died a death conquering death on the cross. Because I can't do that. Thank you for your perfect righteousness, your obedient even your obedience even to the point of death, even death of a cross. Thank you for giving me this Lord's Prayer that I pray all the time, in which I say, Forgive me of my debts, even as I forgive my debtors. I sin so much, I need that in a perfect prayer. I come back to you constantly asking for forgiveness out of experience. It's not abstract, it's not theoretical, it's not the way it is for the angels. I don't know how it is for the angels. But from experience, I need forgiveness, grace, and truth. And I find it over and over and over in Jesus Christ. And as an elder, that's how I want to rule. Drawing my family, drawing my loved ones, drawing those that surround me in this church to the good shepherd who isn't just the truth of the law but is grace and truth who reminds us over and over in scripture not only that we're sinners but that we need to be assured of his pardon and went to the cross to secure that for us the best of men are men at best but as these men, men like Epaphroditus, we are those who from experience can lead others to grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The new creation that we really and truly are and now begin to live up to. And to continue that just for a moment, the exhortation portion Never lose sight of Jesus Christ. It's not just, it's not just forgiveness in and because of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. It certainly is that. And we never get far from that. But I, I read the first part of the chapter intentionally. Look what's going on in this chapter. Paul speaks about himself. Paul speaks about Timothy. Paul speaks about the church in Philippi. Paul speaks about Epaphroditus. But right at the core of that chapter is Jesus Christ. He put the interests of others before himself to the extent that he laid aside the glory of heaven, lived among sinners such as us, endured the cross, and rose again from the dead. That is unique to Jesus Christ. But every Christian, and especially a ruling elder, is called to 
take that look towards Jesus Christ and say, Lord, enable me in my own way as a sinner who's also a saint living in 2023 as a member of Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in Columbus. Enable me to lay aside even the, the rights and privileges that are mine, that I possess, that I own, that I deserve. Help me to lay them aside out of pursuing the interests of others. Help me to be like Jesus Christ, who took on flesh to live this sort of life. Help me to be in the flesh living this sort of life before you. One of the most amazing things to me that Jesus Christ says is in his high priestly prayer when he says, as I was sent into this world, so I send them into this world. You almost feel like you got to correct Jesus at that point. Like, no, no, Jesus, I, I was not God before becoming a human. But what Jesus is pointing to is that he sends his servants into the world to minister, to put the interests of others before their own, to serve, to be messengers of the gospel. In the same way that he came into the world, he sends us into the world. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Put the interests of others before your own. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ following the model of the chief shepherd, the great elder, deacon, and pastor, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we pray that you